This podcast is sponsored by Aurora Packaging Solutions, a global packaging solutions provider leading the transition to a more sustainably packaged future. They specialize in developing packaging and visual communication solutions that reduce the impact on the environment and bring sustainability goals to life. With a focus on partnership and service, they create a custom solution for your business. To learn more, please visit www.ororapackaging.com. Welcome to Sustainable Packaging with Corey Connors. Today's guest is Mr. James Piper, the non-executive director of EcoSurety. Hey, James. Hi. How are you, sir? Very good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks for making time for us. It's You've you've got a quite a career in the world of sustainability, and I was excited to have you on. Can you tell us about yourself? How did you end up in this? Yeah, so I've always had a bit of a passion for sustainability. I used to watch all the Dave Attenborough documentaries, and I love you know the planet and animals on the planet and all those kind of things. So I've always been very passionate about that. And I studied biology at university for that reason, and decided I wanted to do something with that. And I found a company in Bristol in the UK, which were doing some really exciting things. They were helping companies with their sustainability goals and specifically helping them with recycling targets. And I applied for a job as a graduate. I was there for 13 years, about six or seven years ago, they asked me to be CEO. So I took over the running of it and helped grow it into a it's about a 50 person company today and, and so much larger than it was when I started. Wow. Good for you. You go from student to CEO in just a few years. That's impressive. Well done. Thank you very much. Yeah. Quick, quick growth. And so tell us about EcoSurety. What, what, what is that company all about? So EcoSurety, which is the company I joined and eventually became CEO of, and I'm now a non-exec director of, was is helping large multinationals so lots of brands that your listeners will be familiar with with their recycling specifically and in the uk we have a piece of legislation called producer responsibility which is just being turned into extended producer responsibility and whenever <laughs> government put the word extended on things it just means costs a lot more money um, <laughs> that's a true i've been working in producer responsibility for a long time and, and now we're moving into extended producer responsibility and what that is is a piece of legislation that says every company that puts a product out on the market, they need to pay for the recycling product at the end of its life. So we work with producers to work out what they got on the market and what they created in terms of packaging. And then we will help them finance that and make sure it happens at the end of its life. So it's a cool piece of legislation that no one knows exists. (laughs) You know, it's exciting to see extended producer responsibility take hold internationally. And my understanding is the first one was in South Africa in number of last year, but I could be wrong. I'm sure that the UK plastics tax and extended producer responsibility laws in the UK are, are all taking shape now and it's affecting major changes. Would you agree? It really is. Produce responsibility is a massive legislative shift because Produce responsibility is a recycling support mechanism. It's a way of helping recycling happen. Extended produce responsibility is the idea of taking the cost of waste management. So that's the cost. When I put my bins out on a Friday, my recycling Mm. bin and my general bin and my food waste bin, at the moment that is financed by taxes and we have council tax, which pays for it. And extended producer responsibility, which is due to go live in 2024, is shifting that money from my council tax to people who put the stuff on the market. And that is massive 
is we're going from a system that in 2021 costs 140 million pounds. So we're going from that system to a system that's going to cost 1.7 billion pounds. Wow. So if you're a company in that space and you're currently paying a market share of uh, 40 million, suddenly you're facing a cost of a market share of 1.7 billion. Wow. And that, that's massive. And that's why everyone's talking about it. And that's just the UK. Just the UK market. Yeah. Wow. It's taking all of the costs of us putting our bins out and doing on street bin collections and just taking them away from our taxes and to the companies that make the stuff and put the stuff on the market. Wow. And I'm assuming this is going to cause a major shift in the cost of consumer goods. Would you agree? Yes. So interestingly, there's actually a study as part of this. I mean, if I've got my numbers correct, it was that they believe that 85% of that cost will get passed to the consumer. And they've assessed that and decided that that would cost the average household an extra £40 a week. Uh, sorry, a year, a year. That's... <laughs> an extra £40 a year. And that's why there's a lot of discussion at the moment about how that fits into a rising cost of living with gap yeah. and electricity and all the other things, because it's a big, it's not an insignificant amount of money for households that are already struggling. Oh, a fixed income or, uh, yeah, someone maybe just lost their job or dealing with fuel prices skyrocketing, all of these things. It just seems to be bad timing, but unfortunately, it's really necessary that we that we institute laws like this so we can improve the world of sustainability. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. So you you wrote a book. I'm excited to talk about what is what is the rubbish book? So the rubbish book was an idea I had a number of years ago, actually, a couple of years ago. I saw a news story here in the UK that said plastic pollution found on shipwreck. That was the headline. <laughs> um, I clicked it. I went into it. It was 2018, October 2018. I clicked it and there was a picture and in the shipwreck was 38 aluminium cans and nine plastic bottles. And I just thought this is so interesting. The headline says plastic pollution, and it doesn't say pollution or waste or mostly right. metal plastic. <laughs> it was really, really misleading. And I just think, and I think the media is getting worse for this. I actually read, I know this is irrelevant, but I read about a concert last night where the headline was act was booed on stage. <laughs> and I clicked it and they'd given it a five-star review and said it was amazing. And he was booed when he supported a certain football club. So it's like, <laughs> you know, if you just read the headline, you Click would bait. think that was a yeah. bad concert that he was booed at. And it's the same with recycling, with these weird headlines. And if you just read them and you skim them, which most people do, you kind of get the wrong story. So I thought, well, I want to write this down and I want to get into some of the detail and I want to really understand it. And I want to make it simple for people. And I'm a firm believer that when people know why something is the case, they become better recyclers. So if I take, for example, you tell people that something smaller than a tennis ball is very difficult to sort in a material recycling facility. That's much easier to remember than can I recycle a coffee pod? (laughs) Right. So... Once you start saying, well, if something smaller than a tennis ball, it's hard to sort, then when you're scrunching up your aluminium foil and you're thinking, oh, actually, this is a bit too small, I'll put a bit more on it, (laughs) you become a better recycler, but just from one rule rather than like really complex stuff. 
So I thought if I write all these facts down and all these interesting bits of information down, it will help people become better recyclers. So a few years ago, I started writing it as a children's book. And at the start of lockdown, I came across a publisher that did crowdfunding publishing. So they, Mm -hmm. you put your book idea out there and if people like it, they pre-buy it and then you write it and then it gets properly published and it goes through all the normal editing channels. So I did that at the start of lockdown. I submitted that, it got funded. And then I wrote it, my wife illustrated it and it became a really really cool lockdown project. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. I love all these books about recycling and about how to improve the world of of recycling and just sustainability overall. So well done. And thank you for being a part of the solution. How how can we improve recycling? What what can we do to, to make it better? Yeah, I think this comes back to that tennis ball should have said yeah. my tennis ball anecdote <laughs> because you know, ultimately it's about understanding and helping people understand why something is the case, you know, and if I think about like, I've got an, another example, which I can use here, you know, if I think about Pyrex, you know, a Pyrex yeah. jug, it, it can't be recycled and it can't be recycled because it has a different melt point, a glass wine bottle. And so it will create impurity in the glass. And mm. I think if people know that, if people know it's the melting point, you remember it so much better, you know, and, and it just becomes people because, yeah, it becomes something that you want to tell people because they're interested in why something can't be recycled rather than a tick list of this can, this can't, this can, this can't. I, I agree. If we talk more, more about the why, it's so much better. 100%. Yes. Well said. We must speak to the reasoning, you know, why are we doing this? How do we do it? I 100% agree. It's so important that we educate in a way that people understand that, like you said, this is how it works. And so I think that's been my mission for the last year or two is, is discussing, okay, this is, these are the products that are more sustainable. Now, I think I'm shifting towards, these are, these are the ways to recycle. And these are the ways to reuse. And I think that's been, it's been fun to kind of, to talk about all the stuff that's available and then, and then talk about how it can, can be even improved further through reuse and recycling. So yeah, I'm enjoying that. Yeah. Very good. So you're, you're in Egypt, you said, you're traveling the I world. How is the global trip going? Yeah, very good. And I'm really, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult one because this was sort of born out of COVID. It's something I've had in my mind to do for a long time, travel the world. And COVID was kind of the final straw in terms of taking some time out of work. From a sustainability perspective, it does not sit particularly well with me because as we came out of COVID, what we, my wife and I were planning on doing this as, as sustainably as possible, trying not to fly, trying to use buses. But as we were coming out of the world of COVID, uh, to cross borders, we had to fly. Yeah. And so we definitely done more flights than we wanted. But we are using it as an opportunity to explore other recent systems, to use deposit return schemes, to see how people do it. And that's really interesting. And just for the listeners' reassurance, we are planning on carbon offsetting the trip and uh, oh. planting trees uh, cover the carbon. So hopefully it'll be okay. But it's, it's a difficult time to travel sustainably, definitely. Well, yeah. And what are you what are you learning in other countries about their recycling systems that you could share with us? Anything think, positive? Yeah, I mean, we're, we've always heard good things. We're introducing a deposit return scheme in the UK, which is interesting good. because we're one of very few countries 
I'm aware of that have introduced deposit return scheme after curbside. Most people do it as, as a starter point and then they move to curbside. Right. And so we've heard lots of things about how good the Norway system is in deposit return schemes in Europe in general. And we got to experience that and that was good and, and use that. I must admit it was harder than a tourist than I expect. My, yeah. expected. My dad used to live in Denmark and we were religiously using the deposit return systems. Whereas as a tourist, it's actually quite hard to engage with. It's quite hard to find the right places. But Very you, do know true. If you're putting it in, you do know if you're putting it in a bin, like a normal bin, someone's going to come and fish it out to get that deposit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I guess that's the advantage. I haven't seen the whole process through myself because sometimes we just couldn't find a deposit system, but we know someone will will find it. And then other than that, I think we traveled through South America and it was, I mean, that was quite difficult in terms of waste management. They were using, particularly with like straws, we were getting given lots of oxo-biodegradable plastic. It had obviously been mandated for certain things and we were getting things that in the UK we're told aren't particularly good or sustainable. So it was interesting yeah. having different messages and different things happening and us kind of questioning that and thinking, where well, is this the best best thing to be using? Yeah, it's it's a global situation. We all yeah. are dealing with it in different ways, and that's good and that's bad because I think we talked about this before the show started. The UK is doing this, and is that relevant to the world? Yes, it is because we need the rest of the world will learn from what the UK is doing. Did it work? Um, did it not work? Is it uh, what aspects of it were positive? What aspects of it should we copy as Americans? I absolutely am fascinated with the whole global system of recycling, reuse, composting, what's working, what isn't. And it's. I think it'll be exciting to see over the next few years as some of these laws take effect and we'll see, okay, did that really work? I think what's interesting about the UK and what most companies would tell you is a pain about the UK is that <laughs> it's trying to introduce four quite complicated pieces of legislation at once. Yeah. You know, and, and what I like about that is they're complementary. So, you know, if something's in deposit return scheme legislation, it's not in EPR. <laughs> and... Right. If an EPR is not necessarily about whether you're using recent content, because that's in the plastic packaging tax. <laughs> right. So together, as a set of four, they make this really nice kind of complete picture in terms of your product. You've got recycled content in the plastic packaging tax. You've got beverage containers coming back in deposit return systems. You've got the recyclability of a product coming through EPR. And then we've got the fact that it actually gets collected coming through consistent collections. Yeah. And it's bold. It's ambitious. I mean, most companies will tell you it's a nightmare because you've got to manage four things at once. But, <laughs> yeah. but if it works and if they come together, actually, we could see the biggest shift in, you know, recycling behavior. And, you know, one of my things in the book and just how I feel quite strongly is the only way we're going to improve recycling is by improving the economics of it. In order for someone to collect it and recycle it, it has to have value. Yes. And the only way you create value is by saying legally you need to do this thing <laughs> and then that <laughs> makes everyone go okay well now i need to put recycled content in or now i need to or there's a cost if i don't use recyclable product then suddenly that changes the dynamic and and i think what's exciting about the four pieces of legislation coming through is that they will change the economic balance of recycling and suddenly make it a profitable activity i think for for the recyclers out there who don't quite know what to do at this point absolutely i agree in oregon where i live we were the first state in the usa to have a bottle deposit system 
And it's been amazing for us. It was back in the 70s, I think 1971. And I think our leaders at the time were very innovative. And it's it's amazing to see how, how it's working. Bob, my friend Bob from Spring, he told me that, and we've checked the numbers, that states in the U.S. that have a bottle return deposit have double the recycling rates or even better than states that don't have the bottled return deposit systems. So we know it works. It's just a matter I mean, of get, getting it set up. Yeah. yeah, my only criticism of the bottle return system for us is our bottles already have quite a high recycling rate with curbside, quite a high collection okay. rate out of our cans. And so, you know, if I was introducing a deposit return system, I'm not sure I'd copy everyone and introduce a bottle <laughs> and cap. I think I'd be yeah. going after, you know, flexibles, film, pop tubs and trays, things that right. are harder to recycle. So I guess that's my only, you know, when I reflect on a deposit return scheme i understand the principle yeah. but i think i would go for the stuff that's got really low rates to improve those rather than something that's got reasonably good rates that you're just trying to get a bit better and in the uk i definitely think we have miscommunication there's an article <laughs> i was doing some research on deposit return schemes the other day actually for a presentation i was doing and i found an article written by a newspaper in the uk that and the headline and entire article said you will get paid to recycle. At no point did it say you will pay more when you buy this thing right? and then you'll get it back. And so in the UK, there's quite a high consumer appetite for deposit return systems. But I yeah. believe that's because the narrative is completely wrong. You know, the reality is it's actually an inconvenience for most people. And, <laughs> but the narrative is about getting paid for it. And so it's weird. Yeah. That's a, that's a common problem in the world, I think. We... we we talk about it in a way to sell it to the public so that they'll do it. And then, and then once they realize that, Hey, this is a pain in the neck or what I have to pay that deposit when I buy it, they get upset. And then there's push pushback where I wish I agree with you. I wish there would be just honesty up front. Like, Hey, yeah. yes, you have to pay five cents when you buy it, but you get that back when you recycle. Yeah. Simple, simple system that, that needs to be in, instituted here. Well, thank you so much, James. Anything else that you wanted to talk about? No, that's good with me. Excellent. Well, I hope the rest of your trip is amazing. And uh, what, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, so I tend to call myself the rubbish geek. So because I wrote the rubbish book and on most channels, Instagram, LinkedIn, all of those, you can even search James Piper, but my handle is normally the rubbish geek. I love that. Well done. Thank you, sir. Appreciate your wisdom and your time. Thank you, Landsberg Aurora, for sponsoring this podcast. If you're listening, please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and give us a review. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. This episode is sponsored by Specrite, the first purpose-built platform for specification management. So much has changed when it comes to packaging, and there's a new book to help you stay ahead of the curve. The Evolution of Products and Packaging, written by longtime packaging executive Mr. Matthew Wright, helps you unpack industry trends and explains how you can use data to drive packaging innovation and sustainability. Download your free copy today at specright.com backslash book. That's S-P-E-C-R-I-G-H-T dot com backslash book.